Ready. Uh, thank you. Okay, we're going to start with an opening prayer today that uh, has to do with our our topic. To, so, uh, dear Father, uh, we commend to your care, O Lord, those who are old and full of years and can no longer bear the burden and heat of the day. Grant them to be so trusted and learned of you in years which are gone, that in the loss of their daily work and the world they have long known, they shall have not lost you. Give them light at evening time and the assurance that by serene example they may also serve who only stand and wait through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is a prayer uh, by William Sperry, who lived in uh, 1882 through 1954. And those were the years of great change in the world. Uh, he was the, a congregational clergyman and the uh, dean of Harvard Divinity School. So he, um, he gave us a beautiful prayer uh, concerning standing and waiting. Ed and I welcome you today to a, a two-part series, and it's going to be uh, called When It Can't Be Fixed. And uh, we have talked a little bit about this in our uh, small group. Uh, it'll be about old age, about dying, uh, in the light of the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, it's an important subject and has many positive uh, elements to it, as well as the one obvious negative element, which... Uh, leaves people very anxious and unwilling to think about it or discuss it. And uh, in the novel, The Green Mile, which Stephen King wrote, there is a part at the end where Paul, who is the main character and uh, has grown old now with his little mouse, who's also grown very old, and uh, he says, uh, we each owe a death. There are no exceptions. But sometimes, oh God, the green mile is so long. And it is the walking of the green mile of old age and the one death that each of us owes that uh, we are going to be speaking of in the next uh, two sun, this one and the next one. And there are many good books to read about old age. Uh, go to Barnes & Noble, go out here to the bookstore and uh it's great, you know, when you, your mother has Alzheimer's disease to, to go and find something that's very good to, to read, to learn about the things that will happen and to help you along uh, when, you're, when your dad needs to move to an alternative living area, you know, when he can no longer take care of himself. Then you need to be educated in what's available, what's best, and, uh, and that's good. But I also tell you to seek the advice of the clergy uh, when these problems come to you. Seek uh, Gil. You know, he's, he's the best resource for this kind of thing. And uh, also from people in our church, your friends that you have who pray. Uh, tell, them, tell them what you're going through so that they'll be able to walk with you through this. Uh, we are a family here at our church. We're bound together as sisters and brothers in Christ. And what happens to one of us makes a difference to all of us. And so we need understanding and guidance and prayer, and, uh, and we need to ask for it. Uh, but you will need God to help you to do the things that you need and want to do. 
because only he can move the mountains that uh, you're going to need to have moved. And only the words in the Bible are living uh, words that will have power to fill you back up when you get empty. And uh, you don't want to be empty when old age and impending death come or when you're helping someone uh, that you love or to uh, go through these things, uh, even people that you may have old grievances with that that you are uh, that are needing your help and your care. So the the filling back up of uh, of yourself uh, comes from God. Paul speaks of this in Romans uh, 7:15 when he says, "I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate." And so we will need the power of the Holy Spirit to do the things we want to and should do for ourselves and for others. When they say that old age is not for sissies, you know, they're not really kidding on that. I, uh, I, I see it. Martha sees it at, at St. Martin's when she visits now. I mean, it, it's hard. I asked my dad, I said, what, what's it feel like to be old, Daddy? I got to talk to uh, my church about it this week and he says well feels like having the flu all the time <laughs> he said it feels like when you get up you know you're just not going to be able to make it and so uh, I know it is so hard and so why are Ed and I speaking to you this morning about this subject uh, Ed has had 40 years of experience taking care of people living with or dying of cancer he is a GYN oncologist, uh, director of the Comprehensive Cancer Center at UAB. He served as the national director of the American Cancer Society in 2010 and 2011. And he developed a real interest in understanding and then teaching his students and residents at uh, UAB how to lovingly engage in discussing with patients I mean, actually, you know, telling them on that day, you know, this is, this is what's going to happen. You know, this is, uh, this is not curable. And, and then uh, talking to the families lovingly about uh, approaching the end of life. And that is not an easy thing to do, but he is really good at that. But uh, as for me, as a young child on a on a certain day, I had a, a profound and very specific experience of God feeling an overwhelming holiness, uh, an overwhelming love for Him. And um, I've loved Him ever since. I was raised in the Baptist church, which with our family, we were there every day practically. That's, that was our whole life, you know, because my parents had come from the country and they you know, they they were isolated, but in, we lived in Hueytown, and uh, and that's what we did. Our our church was our our life. And when I was 13, I uh, started working in my mother's beauty shop, and I learned that I love to hear people's stories. I just, uh, you know, and when you're washing hair and you doing that, even even at 13, they'll tell you anything, you know. So <laughs> I, I loved hearing uh, about that, and. And then I went to nursing school and, and became a nurse, and uh, I loved loved working with uh, patients and, and with their families. But I worked uh, first at, at Children's Hospital in ICU, and then I worked in the newborn intensive care at UAB, 
and uh, at a young age then came across many experiences of, of uh, families and parents losing their children and uh, and I decided that really probably had to be the most horrible thing, most painful suffering that could happen in life. And, uh, you know, young as I was, I could not comfort them, but could, you know, just stand with them and, and, and cry alongside with them as, as that one death came to them. Uh, I worked for 10 years as a volunteer in the homes of, with hospice at UAB while it was there and um, that was a great experience it, it was and, and um, my daughter Lauren who's now a missionary in Nicaragua she says that that because I would carry her along with me lots of times and, and she said that's one of the uh, reasons that she actually or one of the one of the things in her life that, that drew her to also being ready to help people and want to uh, serve God was uh, being there and I'd, you know, tell her, go sweep the porch or go clean the dishes, go do, you know, while we were there and, and everything. And she loved uh, doing that. And it was it was very important for both of us. But, uh, you know, I would get assigned a patient and then from then on till their death, I would be with them, you know, coming to see them and bringing them food and doing whatever they needed. Uh, and it was wonderful to see what God did. I witnessed uh, miracles. I heard stories, honest, serious stories of Jesus, really Jesus coming to uh, to see them, to visit them at night or whenever, and and talk to them. What what He said to them. Uh, it was just unbelievable. Uh, he He asked one of just the worst man I, I've ever seen. I mean, to start off with, he was awful. Just, I mean, awful. Had kids everywhere, no marriages, you know, just lived this life. But at the end, he changed. He did. And uh, and he said that Jesus came to him one night and asked him, it brought his mother, he said, and asked him, are you tired? And he says, yes, Jesus, you know, Lord, I'm tired. I'm real tired. And he says, well, just come on, man. Come on home. And um, he died like two days later. And uh, it was just really different. It was it was amazing to see. But I've also seen uh, people go to death kicking and screaming and denying that they were going to die all the way to the end. And I have seen uh, people who late experienced God's forgiveness, seen what it looks like for them to have their burdens uh, unpacked from their shoulders, their sins forgiven. I mean, to come to peace and hope at the very moment, you know, of death. And death can be holy. You know, it, it is holy, but it still seems to come with a lot of loose ends because it's not, you know, it's your death, but it's all these other people who who love you, who, you know, are your children, your parents, your, and, you know, it's just, it's, it can be messy, too. So uh, just as in The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins ran out the door totally unprepared, not knowing what happened. Sometimes, you know, life's like that. Going on the adventure, uh, believing 
as we've been told that we have something else to do, you know, besides just to die, that that some great one was not finished with us yet, that that we are children and heirs of the one God and and we're returning home to him. Wow, that's just that's something worth holding on to. So that's my experience. Ed and I cared for his mother who had a severe stroke. She was in the nursing home uh, at St. Martin's for 14 years, and that was when our children were very little. And uh, up until, La- I mean, she had her stroke, I think, two, two months after Lauren was born and then died when Lauren was 14. So that was a, a long time to uh, be, be that way. But we saw a miracle change in her in about the seventh year. So there were seven lean years <laughs> and then there were seven good years because, uh, I don't know, it was just the most amazing thing. It was, a, it was a miracle. We took her in the hospital, had her teeth taken out, which had been so painful and stuff. And, and she came out of there a different person and was happy and, and loved us again and smiled and was contented. And I, I used to say, dang, Dottie. I'd have had those teeth taken out a long time ago. And she would just laugh and laugh. And, and uh, like she knew, she knew. And it, it was just amazing to, to get to have that experience with her. But uh, we had the experience of prying my, my parents out of their beloved home of 52 years and, and cleaning it out and bringing them closer to us so I could take care of them. Uh, my mom had developed Alzheimer's and and she was on a, a, she had lived five more years. Um, but then my d- dad had dementia too. So after she went and we kept him in his house for another year. And then finally he's at St. Martin's now in the uh, independent living. <laughs> he is not independent, let me tell you. But he, they have been so gracious there to allow him to think he's independent. And uh and he is a character. He's a handful. He puts us to no end of trouble, you know, to try to make him happy. But, uh, but he, he's very funny. And so we're grateful that that, that was left to us. J.I. Packer, who came here one time to speak, he notes that in the 17th century, the study of theology was every gentleman's hobby. He goes on to say that knowledge about God and the capacity to think clearly and talk well in Christian things is not at all the same as knowing him. And Packer said that knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. And this way, you can can waste your life and lose your soul also. So that was his uh, words to us. And... In our modern culture, the life that counts is this one, and preparing for life after death is not part of the agenda. 
We valued living as long as possible with healthy bodies and minds, being engaged, living lives of value with a good sprinkling of pleasure to the very end of our days. And when death does come, we hope it is painless and not uncomfortable. We don't want to suffer or to be a burden to others. We want to die in our sleep. Thanks, Barbara. So I think that the the major theme of of these uh, this two week session is to encourage you uh, to actually spend time thinking about these issues in light of Christ, His grace, and the resurrection. Because without that, pretty pretty difficult actually to dwell on it. And that's really one of the real tragedies, uh, I think, of modern medicine. So, in a way, modern medicine has has uh, created a lack of distinction between patients who are sick and those who are dying. And this, among other factors, has led to the, the perception by the public that dying well is sometimes difficult uh, to do or that we don't think about it at all. <clears throat> so all too often physicians recommend and patients accept treatment that is burdensome and of little to no benefit. Chemotherapy often given in the last two weeks of life. Many patients referred to hospice in the last few days of their life. Uh, Men and women with clearly irreversible medical conditions placed in intensive care units with tubes in every orifice, enduring an existence that has no meaning and surely is not life as we know it. If you've ever been in an intensive care unit, you have some idea of, of how different that is from your own living room. So, you know, you... The lights are on 24 hours a day. You're surrounded by strangers. Uh, your family gets in for only a few minutes every couple of hours. There may be a tube in every orifice, including an endotracheal tube, so there's no conversation. There's no ability to give you goodbyes. Uh, uh, so <coughs> many times a tragedy. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week in terms of how how one might deal with that and avoid that in a in a modern world. One of the major obligations of physicians prior to the past 50 years, maybe midway through the last century, was simply to distinguish between those patients who were potentially curable and those who were not. During the Civil War, uh, Stonewall Jackson's physician, Dr. McGuire, was able with impeccable honesty to inform him that nothing more could be done following his being wounded at Chancellorville and that his death was imminent. This was about two weeks after he had been wounded. He had developed pneumonia. And in that day and time, as he was starting his downhill course, no antibiotics, <coughs> the physician knew perfectly well 
he had an irreversible condition, informed him of that. And the general, who was a devout Christian, as many of you know, I mean, a significantly devout Christian, uh, prepared for his death with a frank but loving discussion with both his wife and family. So that's in the, in the history books. Until the last half of this century, a noble and dignified death was sought and hoped for by most. One of the most popular books ever printed in English was printed in 1490, and it was William Caxton's The Art and Craft to Know Well to Die. That was the name of it. And it was about preparing for death. Most individuals prior to this century were intensely aware of death. Women died in childbirth. Prior to the Civil War, a woman had a one in eight chance <clears throat> that she would die during pregnancy and childbirth. It's one in 10,000 now. I mean, one of the real modern miracles of medicine. One in eight. So for every eighth child born, the mother died. It's amazing. But obviously, it made that a real experience for everybody. Not uncommon, uncommon for one or more siblings to die at home in the presence of their brothers and sisters. So child, you know, childhood diseases were rampant. Uh, the extended family, and, and of course, the extended family, grandmothers, grandfathers, died at home. You know, there weren't, there weren't nursing homes uh, like we tend to put our parents in today, including Barbara and I. So they, they lived at home, died at home. Uh, great plagues swept across the countryside. Uh, death was everywhere. It was a part of life that just simply could not be denied. It could not be hidden. At the turn of this century, however, much began to change. The last century, not this century. So about 100 years ago, maybe not even that long, maybe 70, the science of medicine began to impact such things as maternal death, childhood disease, and worldwide plague. So we began a century ago to actually be able to make a difference in people's lives. Simultaneously, families became scattered as our country became more mobile and parents and grandparents died in nursing homes and extended care families. The urban migration of society also contributed to our lack of familiarity with death. In rural societies, men and women were very aware of death as almost everyone in the village and town was a friend or a relative. I count myself among uh, you know, my experience has been much the same as that. I grew up in a small town, uh, Demopolis, Alabama, about 6,000. Knew essentially everybody in the town, truly did, because we all went to the same high school, uh, independent of your class, you know, social class. And so we knew everybody, and I was an altar boy in the Catholic Church. I probably served in 200 funerals. Uh, in an 18 years experience there and and of course went to another 200 because <clears throat> you went to you know everybody that died in town you ended up going to that funeral you knew about them 
uh, in the from age 18 to 65, uh, where I am now, I've gone to less funerals in that period of time than I did in the first 18 years of my life, just because I'm now in this urban society and, you know, in my own neighborhood, I know the person to the right and left across the street and behind me, but I don't know who lives 10 doors down. I don't have a clue who that person is. Uh, you knew everybody. In the, in the small town. It was not uncommon, therefore, you know, as I said, to attend the rites of essentially every person living in that, in that town. <clears throat> the other thing that's occurred, particularly in the last 30, maybe to 50 years, has been the secularization of American society. So death, which is a major theme in Judeo-Christian religions, does not hold a very prominent place in a secular society. In fact, the emphasis is on, as Barbara just said, is on youth, beauty, exercise, personal trainers, promoted by modern media, would lead one to, to, to believe that death might be avoided if one just exercised hard enough. <laughs> of, bought the right products or went to the right spas uh, that maybe, you know, wouldn't happen. Uh, the rise of the modern hospital has also occurred during this century, and it's contributed in its own way. <clears throat> it became another place, and in fact, when I first started practicing medicine, it was the preferred place for people to die. You had to pry people out of the hospital and get them home. And I can remember having conversations with patients who did not want to go home because they thought, you know, they didn't want, they didn't want to, to die in a bedroom where their child was going to have to come in later or sort of amazing when you think about it. So that the choice was to die in some strange place away from those that you that, that you loved and loved you. Uh, but there, I mean, it was amazing. Now, we shifted that a good bit, and we're able to get a lot of people home these days. So we've been a little successful uh, with that. <coughs> and, then, and then it's amazing what we've been able to do in the last 60 years. <coughs> so 60 years ago, if you couldn't breathe, you died. So from 60 years ago all the way back through recorded history, if you couldn't breathe, you died. Now we have respirators, and we have the ability to keep somebody on a respirator almost indefinitely, year after year. You read about it sometimes. If you couldn't pee, couldn't urinate, you died. So, you know, 50 years ago, no dialysis. So 50 years ago, all the way back, it was it. If you couldn't eat, <clears throat> 50 years ago, you died. So if you couldn't eat, you died. 
Now we can feed you with parenteral nutrition through your veins, again, indefinitely. <clears throat> and of course, if you lost an organ, quit functioning, you die. Fifty years ago, we began to have the ability to uh, tra transplant you. So uh, there's no question that, that we can keep someone alive physically almost indefinitely. But <clears throat> it's well to remember that medicine is a balance between science and humanitarian service to mankind. And that's what I'm always trying to teach my, my residents. Uh, uh, there's an intriguing essay that William and Rodney wrote called the, the Vitruvian Man, which is the Leonardo da Vinci, uh, maybe some of you remember the man that's standing with the circle and the, and the triangle, I know you'll, you'll know about it, uh, that described what the complete physician should be. And, the, and this it's an intriguing essay. And the, and the the authors recognize the importance of science to the incredible progress that is made in this century. But science is rooted in the intellect. And so the gains that have been realized in this century that I just talked about uh, provide physicians with incredible power. So, I mean, when you think about it, you, you think about a respirator or, or a dialysis or chemotherapy or antibiotics, all of the modern things in medicine, uh, they, they give a human being called a physician incredible power that, that did not exist 50 years ago, 60 years ago, simply did not exist. Uh, and obviously that power has done much good. But if it's not controlled, and the only control of it, the only control of that power is humanitarian service. And that requires an understanding that attached to the disease being treated by the science is a human being, a distinct entity that intuitively knows himself or herself to be a center of thoughts and desires, Deeds and speeches, loves and hates, pleasures and pain. All of us are the same related to that. And we've got to, we as a physician have to remember that it's the patient, not the disease per se, that is being served and treated. That it's the patient who recovers or dies. The art of medicine requires an understanding of the balance between science and humanitarian service. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit about how one can sort of deal with that from your standpoint, not from the physician's standpoint, but to give you a, 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 a root you in something that can, can, can help with that. But, but any time you, you, you think about, you start thinking about death and dying, obviously... I find it impossible to do myself without the gospel which was preached today, that is that Jesus died for our sins 
and our sins are forgiven. And that's really a lot, but it's still not enough without the resurrection. Because if we just died and we no longer exist, then did we really even need forgiveness? If there's no relationship that we are anticipated to have with the Lord after it's all over. So the resurrection is important too. And all of us remember uh, Lazarus. Uh, you know, Martha and Mary <coughs> sent for him. Lazarus was sick. He dawdled for a couple of days. Jesus did. Uh, a lesson for us in terms of he doesn't always answer right away uh, our prayers. Uh, but then he gets there and Martha approaches him. Uh, my brother would not have died if you had been here. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, he who is coming into the world. So that's a critical piece, I think, for us to remember uh, as we think about the end of life for not only ourselves but for others, our loved ones, in light of this secular society, modern medicine, all of the things that sort of pull us away from, from thinking about that. So, uh, you know, it's, it, all the great questions of life. What is the, you know, does life have meaning? What's its purpose? How do I fit in? Why is there such trouble and grief in life if God loves us so? Why do bad things happen to good people? What's the purpose of suffering? All those, all those, 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 those big questions uh, uh, that 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 get asked, uh, but can only be answered in the light of the of the gospel and the resurrection. So, what's the purpose of suffering, Barbara? <laughs> That's because Ed doesn't suffer when he comes up here to talk. And I, <laughs> I get to talk about that. <laughs> In studying Job's life, uh, these questions are explored. Job was a man that was counted as righteous before God, and yet he was subjected subjected to every loss and every grief that we know. He went from being probably the richest man in the whole world to having no thing at all. And as you read the story, uh, you see Job asking God, challenging God, arguing with God, 
and then God finally speaks. And he answers no question that Job asks, but he reminds Job of who he is and what he has already done. He shows Job himself so that Job might know him. And Job finally says, I have heard of you, but now I see you. And it was enough for Job. And you have to read about Job. It is uh, it's awesome. In Isaiah 55, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. And you can hear our choir just singing this as, as you read it. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and let the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. It was enough also for John Claypool, who was the rector at St. Luke's, and he spoke here many times also, as he suffered the loss of his beloved young daughter, who died at the age of 10 with leukemia. In his book, uh, Tracks of a Fellow Struggler, he speaks of his questions of why. Why this illness and death had come to his beautiful child. Why his prayers for healing had not been answered. Why she died. Um, he would never know in this life the reason for her death. Uh, but the, the passage that he leaned on was in Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hid from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young man, men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The not fainting part is what Claypool really held on to because, I mean, he was down. It was, you know... It was more than he could bear. But just to be able to not faint was was what really touched him that God did for him while he was in this agonizing uh, experience. Time did not heal his hurt. He'd never get over the pain of his daughter. But because he knew God and not just of him, his faith gave him a gift of patience and the gift of endurance and strength to walk and not faint. And he came to understand that every moment of his child's life had been a gift from God and that he was not even entitled to it all. And he came to a place of putting off of his judgment of God. And although he could not understand it, he was able to trust God even in this. He concluded that the best way out of the darkness is the way of gratitude. And I cannot help but recall Barry McRae's Sunday school class right here in this very room when he said that there are no consequences. There is only rescue and there is only joy. 
So how do we proceed knowing that it can't be fixed? If you are a Christian, your path is already laid out before you. In Jeremiah 6.16, it says, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. So Ed's going to take your questions, or, or at least say goodbye for this week. <laughs> so in, in spite of uh, what modern medicine has accomplished in the last uh, century, there always comes a time in all of us when it can't be fixed. <clears throat> it can't be fixed. Uh, I deal with so many people that think it can be fixed <clears throat> uh, and hold on to that. Uh, and that's a tragedy in its own way that we'll talk about uh, next week. <clears throat> but I'm going to give us, uh, we're going we're to try next week to give you some framework for how you can can understand uh, when it can't be fixed and then what are we called on as Christians uh, to do when it can't be fixed uh, both for ourselves and and for for others so we'll stop here and uh, we have time for a question or two if you have one yes sir yeah, there's been quite a bit said <coughs> here recently about studies in the genetic code, the DNA on a personal level, and how this could impact medicine. How do you foresee this impacting the study of old age, and death, and those activities? Well, there's, there's no question that, that <coughs> many diseases, <coughs> and old age itself, is related to deterioration in our genetic well-being. And uh, so we're going to understand it. We're going to be able to, to, to give up a, a more personalized type of chemotherapy or therapy based on the genetic makeup of the cancer itself. But we're never, we're never, ever going to come to the time when it can always be fixed. We may add some years. We may add some understanding. But the Lord designed this world to be born and to die. To be planted as a tree and to live and to die. So it's the creation. And <clears throat> we understand it. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed the more that we understand about science and the deeper we get into the genetic code that and how complex the human body is. There are amazing amount of things that are going on inside us all the time that only, only, it can only be created. It could not, could not have evolved as complex as it is, uh, and and I, I find it, and even the, you know, the the, the the director of the National Institutes of Health 
who's a great scientist uh, and a Christian, uh, believes that too. The more he understands about the human condition, the more convinced he is that it had to be from a creator. But it can never be fixed. And I think, you know, I mean, if it could always be fixed, we'd never be with the Lord. <laughs> and I don't want that. I find I find this world difficult. <laughs> In spite of a wonderful wife, great children, great job, it is a still a difficult world. Thank y'all. See you next week. <laughs>